I have absolutely no motivation to exercise, nearly ever. That's not the first time I've admitted on the radio that I hate exercising, and it certainly won't be the last time. My name is Louis Colorotello, and I am a student at the University of Guelph, trying my absolute best over here to get a PhD in food science. And when I've tried enough for one day, I like to sit down and have conversations with other graduate students to see what they are doing. Or I guess what they're trying to do. In this case, the trying to do is trying to get someone to make behavioral changes, which sounds really hard to do. So I sat down with Karishma Hussain, and we talked about what it means to make a behavioral change, and if those changes stick, with a special twist. Those changes are happening during pregnancy, and we're trying to see if they stick postpartum. But don't take it from me, here's a clip of audio you'll hear later in the show. How are these behaviors maintained in the postpartum? And, and can we say that this intervention was effective in causing change? I guess the only way at this point is to listen to the whole episode in order to find out. Now, while listening, remember that we are both still just graduate students. We're trying our best over here. So we don't know absolutely everything, which is why you're listening to an episode of We Know Some Stuff. Hi, Karishma. How are you doing today? I'm doing well. How are you? I am doing great over here. Could you give us your educational background? Yeah, so I am currently doing my PhD at Western University in London, Ontario. And excitingly, I did both my master's and my undergrad here. And you may be thinking, wow, that's a lot of time to spend at one institution, which it is. (laughs) Yeah. I met my current supervisor when I was in undergrad. Um, And I started off volunteering in her lab toward the end of my undergrad. And I just fell in love with her research and learning about what she does. And I was like, I want to, I want to work with you and I want you to want to work with me. So I started my master's with her and coming out of my master's, I was like, I have more questions in this field. This is something I still want to pursue. So decided to continue on with my PhD with her. And it's been really fulfilling and I've learned a lot from her and it's a great sign I think that she still wants to keep me around (laughs) after all these years she's not sick of you yet yeah Uh, so you have been at the school for a lot of years now and you said that you have a lot of questions and you are answering a lot of those questions what in general are some of these questions that you are looking into so my lab is really interested in knowing more about what types of exercise are right for pregnant individuals and how we can get those individuals to start exercise during their pregnancy and maintain those behaviors throughout their pregnancy. So that's what my research is focusing on right now, but also with nutrition. So I'm looking at exercise and nutrition behaviors during pregnancy and in the first year postpartum. So I'm really curious to see what it takes or how long it might take for a pregnant person to change their behaviors when it comes to how they're exercising and what they're eating and if they can actually maintain those behaviors throughout their pregnancies and after pregnancy when they don't have an active intervention they aren't coming into the lab to see us anymore all right so i have a bunch of questions to jump off with and i'm going to say right now clear the the radio waves that um, I have never been pregnant, and I probably never will be. Um, (laughs) As a cisgendered male, that's probably not something on my uh, docket. However, uh, it is 
something that is uh, very prevalent, like, you know, in society. A, a lot of people get pregnant. And how many times have you seen in movies and in TV, you know, the, the dreaded, the you know, the massive weight gain that comes with, uh, you know, becoming pregnant and uh, that, that lack of desire to do any physical activity. And I'll say, like, I'm not pregnant or anything like that, but I don't want to eat right and, like, be physically active. You're going to tell me... Also, someone has to be pregnant and be physically active and eat healthy. That's too much for me. Yeah, it is. It's really interesting, especially because we see in movies and TV shows and that, oh, you're pregnant, sit down, put your feet up. Oh, let me get that for you. You know, enjoy your eating for two, eat whatever you want. But in reality, we've seen that that is not the case. And it is definitely safe. Um. For pregnant individuals to engage in exercise, barring any other contraindications they might have. Um, but someone who is a healthy individual and they become pregnant, it's likely safe for them to start an exercise program, even if they've never exercised before. It's a good time. We see that at during pregnancy, that's when a lot of people are looking to change because now the focus switches from just their health to the health of their baby, right? So they're thinking, okay, it's not just me. Because when it's just you, I mean, as you said, it's it's hard. It is hard to exercise and eat right all the time. And you're like, meh, it's just me, whatever. I can bounce back from it at some point. But when you're pregnant, I guess that mindset shifts a little bit because it's you are eating for two and you are exercising for two. It's more in terms of the quality of what you're doing, not necessarily the, the quantity like in food. All right. So then let's talk a little bit about like the quantity of food that one consumes. You you just said it earlier, you're eating for two. That's kind of like an old saying that you hear um, when you're you're eating for two. I'm guessing that that's not actually true. Yeah, it is not. <clears throat> you're correct in saying that it's not true. Um, I think a lot of pregnant individuals that I've come across personally and seen in movies, um, they believe, you know, you can eat whatever you want. It's just about doubling your food intake. And it doesn't matter if it's doubling it like you're having two pizzas instead of one or you're having two salads instead of one, for example, or whatever the food may be. But it's we know that that is actually not the case. It's not a complete doubling. It's more of like a 400 to 500 calorie increase, which is really just, you know, two snacks or one meal. Is that's that's an interesting thing, and I think if someone out there has never like calorie counted before, yeah. or like kept track of macronutrients like you know fat and sugar and that kind of stuff, you would be super shocked at how quickly four hundred to five hundred calories comes and goes. Absolutely, yes, and it's not like in my research, we're not necessarily asking pregnant people to start counting their macronutrients and counting their calories because that that type of behavior could um, given an individual's history and their relationship with eating and food it is a very complex behavior Um, so asking someone to count those um, to measure their food intake in that way could be potentially uh, problematic but it's more about just making healthy food choices and and empowering and giving these individuals the tools so that they can, you know, when faced with, do I want to eat something that is, you know, nutrient not dense versus something that is nutrient dense, you know, am I going to eat an apple with a piece of cheese and a glass of water? Or am I going to choose a snack that maybe isn't as filling and 
I'll end up just eating mindlessly later on. Yeah, so that's, uh, it brings up an interesting point. You said a lot that, you know, it's a, it's a kind of an incredibly complicated situation. You know, uh, eating food is kind of a big deal for people. Yeah. It's, it's not just much of like, okay, you will now have one apple. There's a lot that goes behind the decision to eat the apple. Yeah. Like, if you want to eat that apple, like how many apples you're going to eat, how slowly you're going to eat it, how fast you're going to eat it. Yeah. And a lot of this is happening in your brain. So here's the thing is that you don't just study, you know, nutrition and um, I, I want to use the word normal people, but that's not the <laughs> non, non-pregnant yeah. individual. That's what I was going. I was like, I don't know what word to use. Um, you study uh, the nutrition and exercise and behavioral changes in pregnant individuals. That's right. So are there like additional challenges when you're dealing with pregnant individuals that you wouldn't see in um, non-pregnant individuals? Mm, absolutely. So um, when we consider pregnancy, we know that there are a lot of anatomical and physiological changes that are happening in the pregnant individual. So with the expanding uterus, that's pushing on all the other organs and pushing up on the stomach. Um, as well as on the lungs. So we know that breathing might be a little bit more labored throughout pregnancy. We know that um, gastrointestinal reflux or you know that kind of heartburn sensation might be increased. Stomach capacity may physically be restricted because you, know, you have the uterus pushing up against it, so it just can't expand as much. So people may feel that they're feeling fuller faster than they usually are, um, or they're unable to eat as much because they're experiencing pregnancy-related nausea or, you know, quote-unquote morning sickness. So all of those changes are happening, and we're asking these individuals, okay, so despite all of that, all of those physical challenges you feel, in addition to your body just expanding and having to become accustomed to carrying this extra weight, you have to now exercise or maintain your exercise program or start an exercise program and also start thinking about or keep thinking about what are you eating and and if you have a family or if you have other children, are you cooking a separate meal for yourself now? Or is this something your partner's handling? Or, you know, are you cooking several different meals? What about going to the grocery store? There's a social aspect of eating. Like nutrition to me is such a fascinating complex behavior, especially because of that, the social aspect of it and pressures we might feel because of that. So yes, absolutely. For pregnant individuals, it is it's a lot. There's a lot going on. And honestly, it seems like there's a lot going on for non-pregnant individuals. Yes, that's and true too. Like, yeah. you know, you think about you live with a partner and you might even have to like cook different meals from them yeah. um, and not even share the same meal together. That seems like ridiculously difficult. But then like you even mentioned it didn't even come to my mind. What if you already had previous children? And they are probably not going to want your, you know, uh, diet food, not diet, but your your, your nutritional uh, profile. Because mm-hmm. your kids, they could be picky or they might need different nutrients. So mm-hmm. <laughs> not for nothing, you're asking a lot of these people. And even thinking about the time it takes to prepare certain foods. So we were talking about an apple before. That's a pretty easy snack once you, I mean, purchase the apple. Really, to prepare it to eat it, you can wash it and then just eat it right off of the core. But if you take, I don't know, like kale, for example, 
that one's a little bit more challenging. You have to purchase it. You have to take it home and wash it. Maybe you strip the leaves off of the stalk. Then you may want to cook it or put it in a salad. There's a more prep work involved in it. So you have to consider all of that too. What is most easily accessible? I mean, we're all busy people. If you're pregnant and you're still working and you have kids at home and you have other life oh responsibilities. <laughs> like when you, right? Like it's, that's what I mean. It's, it's really challenging. So I think my research comes in where we have a framework for these individuals to follow and we give them weekly face-to-face -face support. So we've, you know, from anecdotal chats with these participants, they've seen that they have enjoyed that and they feel that having that support from someone outside of their family maybe where they might not be getting that or their social circle can be helpful. So you you introduce this topic, but you do research on this. Like, all right, right now we're having a conversation and I'm learning things that I've never known before, the, the amount of difficulty that this has to do with, you know, changing your nutrition and your exercise while being pregnant. Um, but you, you research this. We're not just talking about chit chats and like coming well up with some conclusions. How does one research this topic? Right. So that's a great question. And I think that that could be applied to really anything that anyone is interested in. It's like, I have a question, but how do I try to answer this question now? Um, so my lab, we, we do a lot of exercise-based interventions where, and that's the keyword intervention. So we're, we're intervening in someone's life and giving them a new program or some new instructions to follow uh, based on whatever behavior we're interested in looking at, which in our case is exercise. And we know that when we're looking at healthy lifestyle in general, it's not just about exercise or physical activity, which are actually two different things. Oh, um, okay. <laughs> could you, could you quickly? I'll, I'll segue into okay. that. Right, segue. Um, physical activity is like you park at the grocery store and you walk from the grocery, from your car to the grocery store, or you're walking to the bus stop, or you're walking around your house to get up and go to the bathroom in the middle of the day. That's all physical activity. That's just you being active. Exercise is when you are doing a planned bout of physical activity. And it's typically a little bit more intense than just that daily movement around. What if I'm running to the bus stop? Is that exercise or physical, physical activity? activity? But it's just more intense physical activity. But I don't plan it because I don't plan to be right, late. Exactly. For... Like, so, I'm late. <laughs> so, so it's physical activity because I didn't plan to do it. Yeah. Okay. All right. Deal. Yeah. Right. So with healthy lifestyle, when we're considering, you know, the exercise, the physical activity, the eating, there's a lot, there's a lot of components there. And as we mentioned before, that they're all really complex behaviors and there's a lot that can influence the success of these behaviors. So the way in my lab and with my research that we're looking to answer the question or the questions we have around what type of healthy lifestyle recommendations are best for pregnant people is that we have them into the lab, we introduce them to a healthy lifestyle intervention where we give them a plan for their exercise and their eating. And we have different um, measurement tools that we use to look at how they are how they are meeting the goals of that intervention, of that plan that we give them. So terms we use in research a lot are qualitative, which means that these are things about qualities, and quantitative, which means these are things about numbers. Do you do a little bit of both? Yeah, it is a little bit of both. Um, my research focuses more on the quantitative, so looking at the numbers particularly with exercise and nutrition, those are, they can be very quantitative 
behaviors. You know, you can measure how many calories someone consumes. You can measure how many minutes someone exercises. Um, but there is uh, definitely a qualitative aspect to it, as we were talking about before, with the, the challenges sometimes that can't be measured when it comes to performing healthy lifestyle behaviors with, you know, I was busy today, so I wasn't able to do my, my walk, or I brought my lunch, but my office mates were going out for lunch, so I decided I wouldn't eat the lunch that I packed, I would go with them. So that changed my, my eating behaviors that day. And those aren't necessarily quantifiable things, right? So I think that that is the, the qualitative gives depth and texture to the story when we're looking at answering this question versus just the numbers, just, you know, what we see in the graph versus, okay, well, what caused that to happen? And that's where, when you look at um, maybe implementing this type of research to healthcare and thinking about pregnant individuals who are just seeing their physician or a midwife, how would you actually approach these types of behaviors? in that you know eight to ten minute session that they have with their doctor or their midwife how can you actually how can the the healthcare provider actually focus on changing these behaviors for the better and that's the qualitative bit comes in okay yeah so that's a super interesting sort of concept right there mm -hmm. um because a lot of people when they do uh, sciences they don't have to deal with humans and the the interesting thing about that is that yeah you might see that there is a decrease in calories or yes there might be less uh, fat consumed or they might have gained more muscle uh, but that also has to be paired with what's going on in the brain mm -hmm. which is a little bit harder to measure yeah because if, if we created a program and it was super strict and you know we saw that pregnant people were gaining weight appropriately and you know achieving all the calorie goals achieving their exercise goals but they were miserable while doing it then that's not really sustainable no so here is a great segue by the way into uh what happens after because you said you know you study in pregnant individuals but you're only pregnant for so long right. that that there's a there's an end to that you, yeah. you're at, at some point you will be not pregnant Ideally, I mean, that's the hope for <laughs> Ideally, oh my God. That the baby exits at some point. Um, <laughs> yeah, so in my, in my research, we follow the pregnant individuals from early to mid-pregnancy all the way up until when they deliver, which is anywhere between 37 to 40-ish weeks, most optimally. That's when we give them the intervention. So that's when we're actually following them each week. And by following them, I mean like following up with them. Um, and seeing them in person, and giving them feedback, etc. But after they have their baby, we only see them three times in the first year of the baby's life. Um, and it's not, we're not at that point giving them any feedback or advice. We are just checking in with them. We'll take their weight. We'll see how baby's growing. We do ask some questions like, you know, what have you been eating? How has your exercise and physical activity been going? But we're not actively intervening in their life. So that's the part that to me is really exciting because we're seeing if, did they change their behavior over the course of pregnancy and could they actually maintain those changes now that they have a new human to take care of on the outside? Yeah, that that is, <laughs> I like how you put that, on the outside, uh, because they were taking care of that human on the inside. Right. That That's really fascinating to me. So it, you're no longer like the strict scientist that says, yeah, you have a baby, but you still need to eat this much food. You still need to exercise this much. You're interested in 
if they keep up with these habits. Mm-hmm. And that, that's the core of your research there. Yeah, it's its one of the, the cores. Okay, one yeah. of the cores. Yeah. So what what do you find? Do you, do you find that people are able to keep with these regimens? I feel like I would drop it. The minute that you stop, like, keeping track of me, I'm, I'm dipping my hands into the potato chips. That's not... It, it, you, three and a half seconds later, I would. Right. Well, I mean, it's all about balance. Potato chips can be a healthy or a part of a healthy diet as long as you're not gorging on them for every meal, you know? Just enjoy what you enjoy and everything in moderation. I think that's, that's beautiful. A, that's, that's a beautiful. good piece of advice. But... It's it's been interesting and this is part of my this is one of the studies that I'm looking at for my PhD work is is that question exactly is is how how are these behaviors maintained in the postpartum and and can we say that this intervention was effective in causing change or did it just cause change when it was actively happening that's that's a great question and it's it's interesting to see the numbers because I think the numbers tell a slightly different story from the that qualitative aspect again. Because going back to if someone has more kids at home, now, you know, it's it may be harder because you have that other new baby. Um, or if they what is their social support like? Were they able to take extended time off of work in order to be at home or be in an environment where they can still care for themselves and their child? There are a lot of factors still. But it is it's really interesting. And we also look at, you know, postpartum weight retention, because carrying that excess weight after the pregnancy could be potentially harmful for the, the birthing parents. So it's, there are, there's a lot going on. And we are, we're looking at all of those factors. And we want to see if this type of intervention is delivered into standard care. So like, like I said, in the an obstetrician or family doctor or midwife's clinic. Is this something that needs to be followed up on by the doctor or does some other healthcare professional, should they come in? Is this something that maybe needs to be covered by OHIP if it's potentially we're seeing many individuals struggling with postpartum lifestyle? So it, it opens the door for a lot more questions to be asked and potentially answered. Yeah, because if we want to provide funding for these things, if we want to make it part of uh, universal health care, we can't just say, gosh, it's real tough for, you know, uh, postpartum individuals to, you know, uh, maintain a healthy lifestyle. That's that's not enough. We're not just going to go off of these anecdotes. We kind of need facts to back them up. And, uh, you know, if we go back to the idea of, like, the sitcoms that we've all seen on TV, there's always an episode about the, you know, the losing the baby fat episode. And that uh, that is interesting because you, you made a life change while you were pregnant, and potentially you made, like, a dietary intervention and an exercise intervention, but now you need to shift to a slightly different dietary intervention and exercise intervention. Mm-hmm. Yeah, somewhat. Especially, I mean, <laughs> this is something else I'm interested too. When you think about nutrition in the postpartum period, for some um, parents that might be breastfeeding, right? You're you're providing nutrition for your baby or chest feeding, and even that will change what that individual needs to feed themselves or what type of activity they need to do and how much time they have to do it. So. It is, it is really interesting. And I think when you think about funding, like you said, with universal health care, 
the funding bodies do need to see more quantitative data to see, okay, what are the numbers? But we know working in this field that the qualitative, again, shows such a richer, more textured story. Yeah, and I, I think one of the tough things to do in science is determine how um, quote-unquote feelings and emotions truly affect hard numbers. Mm-hmm. And that's got to be tough to detangle. I'm happy. Everything that I uh, measure in the lab is, is has been dead for a long time. Uh, um, so I don't have to deal with my samples feeling like they just really aren't interested anymore. My corn protein is always going to be corn protein. Right. Yeah. That's, but that's the exciting part of this research for me is that I am working with live humans and I enjoy it very much because from week to week, if there is a change that's happening, it's instant. You know, I can see it. I can see someone's perception shift. I can see them starting to enjoy their exercise more, their walks or whatever it may be. I, and, I, and I love that, that immediacy of, you know, cause and effect. Like we had this conversation, I shared advice and gave you support. And then the next week, like there's been a mind shift. But in terms of measuring that, that's where concepts like um, behavior change theory come into play. So there's the psychology behind it too. So you you are well-versed in nutrition, you're well-versed in exercise science, and now you're telling me you also have to know a lot about, like, behavioral, like, psychology? Yes, it is. What don't you know? Like, you, you've hit, like, all the fields. What's left? Well, I don't know anything about corn protein. Okay, well, fair enough, fair enough. <laughs> yeah, it, there's, I mean, but that's what I mean. When we think about behaviors that we do, even something as simple as waking up in the morning, like, what? What went into that? You know, what went into us choosing the time we want to wake up? Do we set an alarm or not? Do we, are we waking up because we are excited about the day or we have an obligation we have to fulfill that we're not excited about? You know, there's something so simple actually is not simple. And it's the psychology, when you put that lens on healthy lifestyle during pregnancy, it really causes you to be like, whoa, okay, I didn't, I didn't realize that there were so many stages of thinking that one has to go to or mental states that one has to go to in order to actually do a behavior and if it's a new behavior what does that mean if if you are doing two behaviors at the same time nutrition and exercise is that more challenging than just doing nutrition alone or exercise alone that you know this is an interesting point and i'm not sure if you can speak in generalities about this but uh, when people make these lifestyle changes sometimes they get really motivated to do it and, and they kind of like soar off of that motivation. You get a lot of like those happy chemicals in your brain. Um, have you found any sort of soft numbers around like how long people stay motivated when it comes to these kinds of changes? That's a great question. Um, hmm. I will hypothesize what I think okay. because I Go haven't worked specifically with answering that type of question. I love it. But I think it comes down to the extrinsic versus intrinsic motivation. So what I mean by that is extrinsic, so like external motivating factors versus internal motivating factors. And for a pregnant individual, it might be the internal motivating factors are they want to have a healthy pregnancy, they want to have a healthy baby, they want to have a healthy delivery. But the external factors may be more aesthetic. How do they look during their pregnancy? Do they, how do they want to be perceived by others? How do they want to feel maybe during the later stages of their pregnancy or in postpartum. The feeling that one might 
feel when they accomplish or achieve a goal depends on what is motivating them to achieve that goal. I've had participants tell me, you know, before I go for my walk, if, you know, it's a bit rainy, I wasn't feeling it, I think of your voice, Karishma, I think of your voice in my head and I see your face saying, come on, let's go. So, you know, that's definitely an extrinsic motivating factor, but then they feel good because they have that accountability piece. And the next week they come in and they say, hey, I didn't feel like going for a walk, but I thought about you and I thought about the conversation we had and then I did. So it's, again, giving them the, the tools to succeed. So this is where the psychology plays into it. Yes. Yeah. Wow. That just, you honestly, like I was thinking, all right, nutrition, exercise, uh, you know, during pregnancy, postpartum, all of that sounds really complicated, but now you throw in all of this psychology about it. And that's, that's a lot because I know that like whenever a lot of people start diets, it's like a two weeks, three week kind of thing. And then, ah, you slip off and you take a cheat day and then blah, 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 blah. And it, you know, kind of rolls down. Um, back into your old habits. And of course, you're studying the long lasting habits. And that's super interesting, because I think that the tough part about this is that your life is changing so dramatically mm-hmm. with this type of uh, a situation on your hands. You go from not having a child to having a child, or having one child to two, yeah. or five to six. Yes, yeah. And interestingly, pregnancy is a time when people decide to make big life changes outside like you know they'll move or they'll start a new job it's just yeah just like why not you don't got enough going on in your life (laughs) might as well you know change your diet and your exercise in your house and your in your partner and everything exactly so it's a a lot of uh stress and i don't mean stress in a negative way but just there's a lot of there's a lot of stress there's a lot of things happening in, in someone's life when they're pregnant and i mean generally but when you add pregnancy on top of that it's it is, it's hard. I can appreciate it. And even that's why um, approaching exercise and nutrition from a behavior change theory perspective and understanding, okay, well, what people need in order to actually create that lasting change, like you said, that that could be really helpful. And we know that when a parent has those healthy lifestyle behaviors or they're working on it, or they're at least aware of those choices, that that is more likely to get passed down to their child, whether it's something that they're teaching their child or the child is seeing them and able to mirror them as they get older. And even at a physiological level, you know, like inside what's happening within their body, we know that participating in a healthy lifestyle during pregnancy can actually help the the fetus, the infant, have a healthier life down the road for them. Yeah, this is, it's kind of a ridiculously large topic, isn't it? Yep. Yeah, that that's some crazy stuff. Well, I, you you summed it up perfectly. I was going to be like, oh, hey, could you just like sum everything up for us so we can like you know end the show or whatever? But you you did it. I don't I don't have any follow up questions. You you answered them all. No, I did my job. Great. <laughs> yeah, you sure <laughs> Let did. Let me just take this and put it into my dissertation. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. We'll just put the audio recording and just send it in an email. Say like, see attached. Yeah, and I'll just uh, put we'll call it into the like printout that I give to people. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, and if you're lucky, you could just do it, you know, via an email. Like, you don't even have to stand in front of it. I love it. I love it. I will I'll make sure that that happens. Thank you. I have a lot of pull, you know, at Western University, so we'll see. <laughs> All right. Well, thank you so much for talking with us today. It was really a true pleasure. Thank you. For me, too. 
I guess it's a good thing that I am not in Karishma's study because I am certainly not motivated to exercise. The only thing that I'm motivated to do right now is to do a fact check, which we do at the end of every episode of We Know Some Stuff. Because one thing we do know is that it is important to vet our own sources. With that being said, Karishma and I both listened to the episode and we couldn't find anything that was necessarily wrong. However, it is important to note that new information is always coming out and we could always be changing our narrative to be a little bit better in the future. Other than that, that ends our fact check for this episode, which lasted just as long as one of my typical workout sessions. Thanks for listening to an episode of We Know Some Stuff.